2: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network and to our podcast channel, New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and it's a delight today to be talking with historian Piotr Puchalski, who has written a book called Poland in a Colonial World Order, Adjustments and Aspirations 1918 to 1939, Uh, This is just out, and it's published uh, by Routledge and the Routledge Histories of Central and Eastern Europe. So I'm really excited, Piotr, to talk to you today, and thank you for joining us on the podcast.
0: Hello, everyone. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, This is really an honor. Thank you for this invitation.
2: So a little bit about um, Dr. Kuchalski, he has a PhD and he is an assistant professor at the Institute of History and Archival Studies of the Pedagogical University of Kraków, Poland. Dr. Kuchowski's interests include Polish, French, British, and American diplomacy, as well as Western colonialism, totalitarian regimes, and modern ideologies. About the book, Poland in a Colonial World Order is a study of the interwar Polish state and empire building project in a changing world of empires, nation states, dominions, protectorates, mandates, and colonies. Drawing from a wide range of sources spanning two continents and five countries, Biet Puchowski examines how Polish elites looked to expansion in South America and Africa as a solution to both real problems such as industrial backwardness and perceived issues such as the supposed overrepresentation of Jews in, quote-unquote, liberal professions. He charts how, in partnership with other European powers and international institutions such as the League of Nations, Polish leaders made attempts to channel emigration to South America, establish direct trade with Africa, expedite national minorities to faraway places, and tap into colonial resources around the globe. Kuhlowski demonstrates in his book the intersection between such national policies and larger processes taking place at the time, including the internationalist turn of colonialism and the global fascination with technocratic solutions. So I want to get right to your motivation, if I may, because this is the classic question that I, I like to ask if there are personal stories or If it's an intellectual project, um, Piotr, I I would really um, like our listeners perhaps to hear your voice and and what drew you to researching this wonderful book.
0: Of course. So there wasn't one single factor that I could pinpoint to as the main inspiration. However, as you mentioned, uh, I do have a family connection to colonialism. We might uh, argue my great uncle, uh, Franciszek, during World War II, he was... uh, uh, forced to leave Poland at the age of uh, 16 uh, to work in the mines of Western Germany, then uh, after World War II, um, when you know the Americans uh, and the British and the French uh, came in, he boarded a ship for Australia, from where he went to the Manus Islands, which was at the time, uh, I believe, um, a League of Nations mandate, uh, still a part of New, Gu- New Guinea, which was the League of Nations mandate. Um, or, or on the way. Uh, to becoming a League of Nations, uh, excuse me, a United Nations trustee uh, territory. Uh, So that that really provoked me to think about uh, internationalist colonialism, uh, territories being ruled by nation states, empires, but at the same time being under this uh, larger umbrella um, of uh, international institutions. Uh, and then I also came upon, uh, some online trivia articles about Polish quote unquote adventures, uh, in Liberia and Angola during the interwar, uh, period. So this was, uh, toward the end of my mm, bachelor's, uh, studies, undergraduate studies, uh, at NYU. Uh, and these articles were making sort of shallow arguments about, um, these, uh, acts of, you know, Polish colonialism, um, being just uh, ridiculous sort of products of anti-Semitism, nationalism, which w- w- of course was to a large extent true, but there was this deeper uh, story that I soon discovered about um, the Polish so- so-called colonial actions um, actually, you know, um, connecting uh, or, um, you know, re- referencing uh, broader colonial ideas about, you know, joint colonial rule internationalist colonialism, you know, liberal colonialism, uh, and so on. So, so that's sort of the um, intellectual um, interest that that the story piqued in me.
2: I, I have a, I have a lot of questions because I'm so fascinated in your book, in the seven chapters, by how you shift this colonial history and colonial turn into real case studies and, and projects of of Polish colonial empire. So, I wonder if you might say a few words to our listeners who who might not be familiar with all of the historiography, the extent to which cultural and intellectual historians such as Larry Wolf, his work "Inventing Eastern Europe" (1994), or Ava Thompson—I remember reading her work "Imperial Knowledge" on Russian lit and colonialism—the the extent to which you abide or maybe don't abide by. Their framework. What what do you see as, as interesting in the way that you conceptualize the colonial turn and these actual test cases from 1918 to
0: 1939? It's a big question. Right. So uh, you mentioned Larry Wolf, of course, his uh, famous uh, classic uh, work, "Inventing Eastern Europe." Of course, after um, Larry uh, came uh, to the Rova around the same time. Uh, Uh, many, many other scholars who pointed um, out that Eastern Europe, uh, basically since the Age of Enlightenment, was uh, this semi-oriental foil uh, for Western Europe, for Western philosophers, Western thinkers, Western dictators later on, of course, uh, if we talk about the 20th uh, century. So uh, they um, drew our attention to the fact that perhaps Eastern Europe can be seen uh, in in, in this post-colonial lens. And of course, Um, Recent uh, studies um, from even the last uh, five or ten years um, have elaborated on this um, and have shown all the complexities in which uh, Poles, Czechs, Hungarians uh, throughout history, uh, throughout modern history have acted as both colonizers uh, and victims of a sort of colonialism or colonization. Um, I'm thinking of Larry uh, Urania uh, Valerio. I'm also thinking of uh, my advisor from the University of Wisconsin Madison, Catherine Siancia, um, and we can talk about um, her work uh, a bit later. So I am trying to complement this in a way uh, and show the ways in which um, uh, poles were actually inspired by their own post-imperial status. Carry out what they themselves called colonial policies,
2: and um, I, I think I think that's a, it's a great point to begin talking about your sources because I, I see so many interesting things, interesting things happening with how you actually begin to tackle this this project um, and look at geography and commercial um, orientation. So I, I would guess. There are many aspects to this, a civilizing mission that is economic and political or imperial or national. So introduce us, if you can, to some of the sources that you've begun to collect in languages and archives and so on.
0: Uh, Of course, of course. Um, So my source base um, is quite diverse. Uh, In the first place, I look at uh, accounts, uh, memoirs, Uh, diaries uh, of uh, the people who are involved in these settlements and commercial projects. Uh, And if you look at sort of the structure of my book, you will see that um, the first um, area of interest was South America, in particular, this this Brazilian-Argentinian-Paraguayan borderland. Uh, And um, there, um, the Polish state, but also uh, sort of this... uh, collection of Polish institutions, allied to the state, uh, wanted to create um, a, a center of uh, of settlement where Poles would not assimilate, where they would act as commercial agents, uh, where they would, uh, you know, um, show more loyalty to sort of the mother country, the metropole, Poland, than to uh, the hosting uh, nations. And uh, I, um, unfortunately, could not find too many uh, archival material, um, meaning diplomatic papers, diplomatic correspondence, or even sort of institutional correspondence related to uh, these projects. So I had to resort to again um, memoirs, uh, you know, diaries, uh, letters, even right. Um, so um, so that was the mm, mm, th- that was sort of the social history aspect of my work. Uh, we might um, say. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I, I did look at um, uh, the diplomatic stuff in Warsaw at the Central Archives of Modern Records. Uh, I also uh, traveled to to Berlin, uh, to, to Paris, to en provence where the French colonial archive is. Uh, um, and of course, to London, to New York and to um, uh, Stanford to look at the expat um, Polish um, archival collections as well. Uh, and I um, and I did this to acquire, you know, different perspectives on the Polish um, actions, the Polish endeavors. You know, um, obviously the um, ter- ter- territories with which the Poles uh, dealt with um, during this period were under uh, the, the dominance of, of colonial empires: the British, the French, uh, uh, the Germans had a lot of influence. So I um, I wanted to uh, to get their perspectives.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so for our listeners, I want to just say that there are seven chapters to the book. So um, we'll cover as much of this as we possibly can. The first chapter is Emigrants into Colonists. The second is Between Periphery and Core. The third is European Solidarity. The fourth is Prometheus Bound. The fifth is Reforming the Wilsonian System. I I particularly like this as a historian of, of Maps and Wilson. Um, the sixth is Useful Abroad, Unwanted at Home. And the seventh is called The Last Resort. And, and I would urge people simply to read the, the whole book and, and also the afterword covering the period into World War II. So I, I want to ask a couple of questions, uh, if I may, Piotr, about Brazil and, and some of the work that you do in, um, as you say, looking through memoirs, but also kind of trying to trace Polish colonialism as a project to what extent do you actually see the Polish consulars and the the consular network diplomats becoming in, involved in places like like Brazil I mean in talking about some of the the areas that you mentioned how how are they actually envisioning the places where they're trying to ship in other words, where they're encouraging emigres to, to leave and depart for a better life. And, and I guess this would include the, the sources you've collected at Arxivam Aknovic um, or Narodove Arxivam Tsifrove, the sort of like uh, general things. But, but perhaps tell us, if, if you can, how this must obsession, it seems to me, was, was developed um, for the interwar period. How did they envision Brazil?
0: So they envisioned Brazil as this pre-modern territory, Um, pre-modern in the sense of economy, but also in the sense of civilization Uh, and civilization in quotation marks, uh, of course. They uh, saw an abundance of land. They saw a sparse population Um, and they saw um, a lack of strong industry. And these were three components that... Uh, particularly pleased them because uh, they were concerned with emigration uh, from the Polish lands. Um, especially in the 1920s, um, there was this resurging wave of emigration, Polish landless peasants mostly, but also some sort of um, towns uh, town dwellers were leaving uh, the Baltic shores for North America until the mid-1920s when the U.S. sort of imposed uh, immigration restrictions and for South America. Uh, and these polish um statesmen uh elites they want they they knew that they couldn't really stem this or and they were not even willing to do so because uh they did not want to introduce a full agricultural reform that would fix some of these land problems land hunger uh they wanted to channel this immigration and they they thought that again South America was a place uh that was first of all still open to polish immigration um and it was a place where uh, peasants would not easily assimilate. They could perhaps resist assimilation well. Um, and a place where they could acquire land uh, and where on this land they could grow certain raw materials such as cotton, such as uh, even rubber in some places uh, that could uh, be shipped to Poland at lower prices. Uh, so so this will you know generate some economic profits um, uh, for for Poland for the Polish industry, which was uh, uh,
2: considered
0: uh, undeveloped by by the same polish right. Mhm. Mm-hmm.
2: and and so maybe if this would be a good moment to to get out of just talking about one country, so which are the countries that that you actually began with, and which are the countries that that you Finished with, and and here I'm, I'm talking not just about Latin America or South America, but ultimately the kind of research that you do um, for for say Angola. What what I mean? Which are the countries where you found an abundance of sources? And I guess what changed from beginning to end, if you can answer that.
0: Right. So um, the best documented uh, Polish um, colonial action to use the language of the contemporaries, um, uh, is the, um, the mission to Liberia, because it involves so many um, players in terms of states, in, th- in terms of uh, sort of educated uh, people who could leave sources behind. Um, so I, I started with Liberia, but of course um, I needed to trace the source of this polish colonial idea uh to even understand how this uh, polish mission to liberia um uh, came about what inspired it was it pure opportunism uh because liberia sort of asked for poland's help or was it uh or, or was there sort of a mm-hmm. right so uh i actually um transitioned to researching brazil and uh, i uh, went back as far as uh, the end of the 19th century, uh, and again, this idea of uh, um, pre-modern uh, land preserving this, this primordial Slavic Polish pioneering nature manifested itself to me in, in the sources from from the period and in these in these memoirs, but also propaganda leaflets um, released published by certain Polish um, Polish institutions.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question to me as, as someone who's researched the Paris Peace Conference and, and with my work on the treaty making and Ganesh Romer and some of the geographers, because I what I'm fascinated by is how you see both official channels and, and unofficial channels intersecting through the 1920s. and And I guess this is definitely a response to the quotas, as you say, that are introduced in 19, 1923, 1924 in the United States against immigration. Um, but I, I wonder if you could say, Piotr, a few words about um, how, how this develops before the, the Piuszynski coup, for lack of a better term, in 1926. So who, who are then the lobbyists, um, if you will, the advocates, the pundits? Um, can you give us some names and, and how they're kind of pushing for these colonial trading outposts? I, I mean, I think of in many ways like Gazeta Świateczna, right, Świateczna for, for Cameroon in Poland, but maybe there are other examples that, where you can see this, this kind of unofficial and official colonialism. How, how do you conceptualize that?
0: Right. So... The actors responsible for really initiating these settlement projects or even projects of reinforcing existing clusters of immigrants, um, are not, are, are never, um, completely cut off from the Polish state. They're always employed in some form. They're always in some form involved with, uh, the state building project in Poland however um, before Piłsudski's coup d'etat they're struggling to hear their voices heard um, and being heard is difficult for them for multiple reasons governments are constantly changing uh, you know the, the 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 situation is unstable uh, also the economic um, situation um, is uh, you know far from perfect so um just to give you an example this um, a very important figure, which I uh, mentioned throughout the book, uh, Kazimierz Warchałowski um, was uh, a landowner uh, and uh, worked for this institution called um, the Immigration Office, um, but only for a very br- brief period of time because uh, because he, he he was soon fired. He fell out of favor, uh, so he needed to right so he needed to resort to um the finding uh, sponsors for his uh peruvian project um elsewhere outside of uh, you know official government uh, channels mm. so, so so these people before uh nineteen twenty six but really nineteen thirty are sort of floating around and transitioning between one polish institution um, and another. so um so this is really um a drawback to uh, to the Polish colonial immigration uh, policy um, pre 1926, but again even pre 1930. So the so the state policy only consolidates the state policy vis a vis South America and Africa only consolidates um, around the year 1930 when certain activists and the government, the Sanatia government, uh, come together and reach some kind of a consensus. Because there's also sort of the tug of war between uh, some right, right-leaning um, individuals, groups, and the Sanatia before 1930. So it's really the Great Depression, um, you know, the, the market crash in 1929 that sort of serves as an impulse to, um, to unite and to create a common front um, when it comes to, you know, colonial policies.
2: Mm-hmm. And it, might you say a word also about the relationship between other European colonialisms? I, I'm really fascinated in how you trace this epistolary network of, of letters and communiques and exchanges really between um, delegates. I, I mean, I took note of, of the Romer family, obviously, but people like Jan Pierowski, the Polish delegate in Madrid. I mean, how, how would you say the... English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, German, other colonial um, governments are, are responding to Polish aspirations through the 20s when they begin to catch wind of, of what what they're doing. Is, is there a general pattern or do you have to really go by e- each um, sort of set or series of, of letters and projects in different countries? How, how do you read that?
0: Uh, right. So uh, the European empires are not really concerned with, um, quote unquote, Polish colonialism in the 1920s because it's really emigrant colonialism that um, these uh, state allied Polish institutions, such as the Immigration Office, are practicing. Uh, it's about reinforcing uh, these clusters of immigrants um, in the Paraguayan, Argentinian, Brazilian borderlands. Uh, then toward the le- late 1920s, it's about creating additional settlement and that's when this uh peruvian project by varkalovski uh, comes in place but of course the great depression is a watershed moment um, exactly yeah yeah it, it, because well because it forces industrialization in south america uh you know you have uh, of course the phenomenon of price scissors um raw materials are becoming very cheap um so exports are falling uh, uh in Brazil, to some extent in Argentina, they, they cannot export as much. So they need to use these raw materials internally. And that sort of um, leads to greater industrialization. It also leads to uh, autocrats, such as Getulio Vargas coming to power in Brazil. Uh, and these, uh, this new regime, um, it does not want um, consolidated homogeneous Polish or German or Italian settlements on its territory uh, in Brazil, Uh, so so, so the Polish aims and uh, the Brazilian sort of state-building aims um, are at loggerheads starting in 1930. Um, So so Vargas introduces these immigration restrictions, um, uh, also um, the, the Brazilians are beginning to control the flow of capital more, um, and so not only is reinforcing new settlements becoming more difficult for, for poles, but also uh, creating new ones. Uh, so so this, this idea of, uh, you know, acquiring uh, cheaper raw materials from Brazil, or from Argentina, uh, is starting to fall apart um, in, the, in the early 1930s. And this is precisely the moment at which a subgroup of colonial activists, uh, especially the geographers such as Apollonius Laryta, um, but also Gustafor Dždrescher who, uh, who had studied geography and commerce earlier, uh, they began thinking about Africa. Um, and they, uh, they realized that using Regular people, peasants, uh, town dwellers, uh, as colonists is unrealistic. These people are leaving Poland for work, for a better life. Uh, them, right after bread, they're not interested in in, in being conquerors in being pioneers. Um, so this institution that emerges uh, and uh, and integrates earlier institutions, the Maritime and Colonial League, Liga Morska i Kolonialna under the leadership of Orlic Drescher um, and now advocates for very limited pioneering settlements uh, in Angola, uh, in Cameroon, even though that project never really materializes. Um, So it's about trade, it's about commerce, it's not so much about channeling immigration anymore. Uh, So this is a transition, and adjustment that takes place as a result of the Great Depression. But of course, uh, to your question, um, there are more adjustments to come. Because in Angola initially, um, initially the Portuguese um, are very inviting. Uh, they uh, they make overtures to the polls. They uh, they need investments during the and any sort of um, well-off poll um, who's willing to emigrate to Angola is welcome. Um, however, um, you know uh, a year or two later, uh, the Portuguese under salas are also starting to become not so much of the Poles in Angola, but of the Germans. Because mm, the Germans that's a great used- point, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. because because the German uh, government, you know, the Weimar Republic uh, is using um, German agents uh, with Polish or passports to infiltrate Angola, and this creates uh, an excuse for Salazar to uh, to basically uh, impose uh, new restrictions on, on immigration. And or as a result of that, but they also suffer as a result of their own, uh, because um, the league, uh, the maritime and colonial, league commits a mistake, a blunder. It's uh, it doesn't really control who Poland for Angola. So the uh, the people who leave are these rich say aristocrats such as Zamoys- yeah. Yeah. Zamoyski Zamoys- <laughs> I was just going to yeah. ask about
2: the Zamoyski family Yeah, can you oh, can you course. say a few words about their their whole era africa um fantasy i, I mean I, I like how you draw the connection and this this i think is in your chapter 3 or 4 between the Zamoyski family fantasy and and um zarichta's ideas about parana and, and peasants and their Modernity or anti-modernity and backwardness and so forth. I mean, how how did you actually stumble into this Zamoyski project? I, I love the story that you told about the Chevrolet truck and the plots of land and and clearly what they're what they're doing. I think after 1929 it is a project that involves development or correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, how how do you actually see this whole old Schlackda uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth family getting involved in these places?
0: No, of course. So uh, this is this is exactly my point. There is this contrast between what Zarechta wants to do, um, locate peasants uh, and other groups in sparsely populated uh, areas, uh, and what Zamoyski wants to do, which is sort of a modernizing project. It's, it's a project that, uh involves the de declassed schlachta the de class aristocrats becoming entrepreneurs in africa uh so, 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 so it's, not, it's about developing africa of course to the benefit of the poles right of the europeans uh it, it, it's building sort of these huge uh latifundia but also uh some uh, some uh, processing plants for coffee and for all the raw materials um and, and these people he and his uh, uh, accomplices, his allies, uh, Zygmunt Gebetner and others, um, they don't like the sanatia. They don't like right, what they call. Right. Um, they don't like what they call, uh, you know, Polish left-wing socialist debauchery. Um, decadence. We see decadence. Yeah. There you go. Um, so, so, so they don't really want to work with the Maritime and Colonial League. Um, so uh, even um, uh, again the leader of the league at the time is somewhat in line with their idea of of building uh, modern trading posts in Africa uh, even though again ideologically at that time somewhat aligned um, Zamoyski still does not trust the Polish state there's this uh, dissonance um, so so, so, so yes yeah, so so between sort of the internal divisions of the Polish settlers in Angola and suspicion about any foreigners uh, in Portuguese uh, territories, uh, the um, uh, is essentially abandoned. Uh, the, the poles try to revive it later in the 30s, but uh, but basically it's over in the in the mid 30s, um, and. Our time and Colonial League understands why it happened, Um, and uh, it adopts a different strategy in Liberia. So, um, if you like, we can talk about that.
2: Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, I I haven't asked questions about race, and I definitely want to focus on um, that in Liberia, Haiti, and and Ethiopia. So, you know, you're you're speaking in many ways, I think, about actions in the plural, and, and not just one, but actually as it turns out, multiple projects in multiple countries which which represent this surge, if you will, toward Polish Euro-Africanism or maybe Pan-Africanism. So I, I guess my my question here, you know, covering a lot of the scholarship that's been written about this period from the mid-20s to the to the nineteen thirties, what what is your intervention here? I mean, what exactly do you think is, is novel or, or what are you finding in this greater, bigger story, successes or failures about the Polish action projects in places like Liberia, Haiti, and, and Ethiopia? Is it, is it adding to this a story of race and racism and colonial operation? Or, or what do you think is the main line?
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? Or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
0: Well, I, I think that one of the contributions is, is showing how victims can become perpetrators in a way. Um And how victimhood instead of leading to uh greater morality can actually uh you know lead to this perpetuation uh of uh, of a certain pattern right which is which is colonialism um but I also um underline the coexistence of different colonial systems uh, um during the interwar period right because paul sort of tried to navigate between. State-based colonialism uh, in um, the, the Portugal uh, parts of Africa, Portuguese parts of Africa, um, internationalist colonialism, which is what Liberia is uh, fighting against this uh, imperialism, right? a sort of capitalism, which uh, which also affects Liberia um, and Haiti, right? Um, so, uh, so, so, so again, I, I I try to show that this colonial order uh, consisted of many systems uh, and it was uh, in constant flux uh, and it was but again it permeated all sort of independent countries uh, that had uh, sovereign foreign policies at the time because we, we never think of eastern europe as interacting with colonialism um, apart from sort of this um uh, internal colonialism that Catherine Siancia and others write about. So, so, so I really, I really want to show that this wasn't just about you know within Europe. This was global.
2: Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I really have to ask you what what happens after Pisodsky, but but also for that matter after 1933 or maybe 1936. You have an entire chapter devoted to um, Wilsonianism and and the. Intersection of Polish colonial policy with the League of Nations. Perhaps you could say a few words about that. And I'm very interested, Piotr, and for all of our readers, if you can tell us about Yusuf Beck. Um, and like again, you know, this turn between Beck's bilateralism toward unilateralism or maybe away from multilateralism. These are two separate questions, really, based on two separate chapters, but. Um, this is, a, again, a way, if you can, to talk about the shift that happens in the mid to late 1930s. What, what is your take on that?
0: Right. Uh, so, so let me go back to Angola because uh, in the concept of Africa and um, let me unravel that. So it, it was this idea that Europeans should work together to exploit Africa, essentially. Um, That there should be this European solidarity, which is why um, that is the title of uh, one of my chapters. Um, And uh, this was, of course, a fleeting idea because, as I mentioned, uh, the Portuguese under Salazar um, were not interested, really. Uh, they thought it was too risky. They they, they they realistically assessed the situation and noticed that there were too many divisions among Europeans to um, to really attain this this ideal station marks, because for Africans, this was far from ideal, of course. Um, and, and then, um, once the Polish elites realized that Angola is not uh, really a destination for their um, colonial aims, um, they received signals from Liberia. Um, which is in trouble because it practices a form of uh, forced labor um, and uh, it also wages a war against uh, one of um, the tribes in the interior, the Kru tribe. Uh, and Liberia, just to remind was one of the the only two independent states um, in Africa, apart from Ethiopia. Um, it, it was established essentially by the United States States um, in 1848, um, and its elite uh, were um, descendants of freed uh, black slaves from from, from America. Uh, So this was sort of an independent country established uh, as part of this Back to Africa movement uh, under Monroe and and other uh, U.S. presidents. Uh, So yes, so it's in trouble in the 1930s, um, and it's in danger of becoming a League of Nations mandate. Um so the British and the Americans float uh idea that uh if Liberia does not take care of um its uh slavery problem, if Liberia does not uh take care of its uh financial problems because of course uh the prices of rubber are falling so the loans that the US uh has given to Liberia uh cannot be so easily paid. Uh, so yes, yeah, so, so the British and the US
2: um yeah. That's really interesting.
0: In uh, and and they appeal to this uh, concept of international uh, trusteeship with mm-hmm, them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, taking mm-hmm. taking this country under uh, this international umbrella uh, as a means of basically seizing control, right? Uh, of of uh, securing their interests. Uh, and the Liberians turn this around, and they appeal to Poland, and they essentially argue that. Uh, instead of appointing experts and um, uh, advisors um, from Britain or from the United States, uh, we're going to appoint um, uh, experts from Poland, because Poland is a colonial power. Because, uh, but at the same time, it offers some, you know, technical assistance. Uh, so, 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 so the Liberians themselves are sort of playing into this discourse, this Wilsonianist colonial discourse, to save themselves. And they, uh, right, and this opens the gate, of course, for the Poles who are aspiring to become a colonial power. This is exactly. Ironic. Yeah. Uh, to, yeah. To, 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 to enter. To, uh, yeah, to try right. to... The, mm-hmm.
2: I, I, th- I think you have a lot of convincing evidence about that. And, and it's so curious to me because I, I'm i reading shifts through the lenses of, of books like Mark Mazower or, or Susan Peterson. Um those were some of the books I remember reading when I was trying to get a handle on what exactly this project of collective security really meant. If, if you finally got to the level of, of geography and cartography and, and maybe to the language, as, as you describe it later on in your conclusion, of, of technocrats and internationalists. Um, and, and I guess, you know, that's that's one of the big parts I, I see in your work as a, as a connecting point to Catherine Siancia because it's the language in many ways of this um, technocracy and and capitalist modernity and internationalism that that is also, correct me if I'm wrong, appropriated by decolonials and and anti-colonials later on. I mean, those who become critics of this uh, somewhat chaotic broader colonial agenda coming from Warsaw Um, You use the description for the end in in describing uh, this as as kind of ideologically foggy. Um, And I wonder if I could tease you a little bit with that in in describing the interwar uh, colonial agenda. I mean, do you see these planners ultimately, whether they're in Peru or Angola or like Beck, including Palestine, then still abiding by this kind of technocracy, this project of modernity, this is a big kind of historiographical question um, for understanding Poland in the interwar period through a colonial lens.
0: Right. Um, So there is this underlying contradiction. Um, The the Polish colonial media, as I call it, Wishes to exploit pre-modern regions, or at least regions that it sees as pre-modern, um, under um, full of free land. Of course, there are people living on this land, but they like to overlook that, um, uh, and, uh, and and they want these places to be located in warmer climates where uh, they can grow uh, raw materials that are expensive uh, for for the, the Polish industry. So again, cotton, uh, coffee. Um, um, the rubber, etc. So, uh, so, so, so they're looking for pre-modernity abroad, but at home, of course, they want to attain modernity. Um, but, but, but they're not. It, it's it's impossible because in order for these um, enterprises to be profitable abroad, in Liberia, in Angola, in Peru, in Brazil, in Madagascar. Um, the, the, the centers of settlement um, need to be connected to ports, to railroads, to uh, to, to processing plants. Um, so, so, so on the one hand, they're sort of they're sort of hoping that they can establish these farms, these plantations, these trading posts um, in isolated locations uh, that had not been properly exploited by. Uh, the imperial powers. They they hope this is sort of their way in. Uh, they, they will be granted these concessions because nobody else wants these regions uh, because they're so inaccessible. But on the other hand, it, it, it's sort of hopeless because uh, they cannot uh, successfully uh, extract coffee from Liberia if they don't build, if they don't build, uh, again, railways, if they don't have a functioning port. Where they can uh, load and unload uh, cargo. So, uh, so there's this tension between this fascination with pre-modernity, which makes some sense uh, geopolitically, um, and uh, this this wish to, to modernize at home.
2: Mm-hmm. And do do you finally see a continu- a continuity after or through 1938 and 1939? I I'm really you know fascinated again, with the sort of technocrats, people like geologists, geographers. But, um, you know, you have this part in The Last Resort, which is toward the end of your book, in which you're speaking about um, some continuities, I'd say, but the the dispatching of refugees and the thousands of Polish refugees uh, in the work of the government in exile, so I mean, do you see the, the Polish government in exile during the war taking over a lot of these kind of colonial aspirations, whether they're racial or, or Catholic religious? I mean, what what exactly is 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 the the history of this? Because obviously there is no foreign ministry, but there are people who are working um, for the Polish state in, in exile to try and figure out solutions in the global south and, and elsewhere for Polish um, pre-1939 citizens? What, what are those continuities?
0: Right. So starting in 1936, uh, the foreign ministry under Jozef Beck uh, takes over the responsibility for colonial projects from the Maritime and Colonial League. Um, and Beck is really interested in, yes, on the one hand, continuing some of these projects, uh, and making them profitable, uh, making them realistic, uh, making them modern also in Africa. But on the other hand, he's interested in technocratic solutions uh, to to the problems of um, under-industrialization overpopulation. Um, and he uh, and his experts, uh, Titus Komarnicki, uh, but also Tadeusz Brudziński, who is at the same time an advisor in Liberia, they come up with... Um, some proposals um, uh, which they express uh, in different sort of committees uh, in Geneva, the Economic Committee and so on. And uh, one of them is introducing an international capacity to purchase raw materials. Uh, Another is to uh, very radically um, break up uh, certain territories and sort of reassign them to different powers. Uh, so, so he comes up with all these uh, technocratic ideas that he hopes uh, might be better received by the international public, uh, of course, mostly the Anglo-Saxon public. Um, so, so, so he takes a step back and he tries to assess this more realistically and he uh, tries to reform the Wilsonian system in a sense um, by... by um, you know appealing to uh your africa in this um, even more international um, um context and so after 1939 it, unfortunately um all of these farms in uh southern rhodesia mozambique uh, angola um had been reformed to be more economically profitable uh, but of course that is not what the government in exile is mostly concerned with. They're still not meaningful. Uh, you know, sure they're profitable, but they don't make a difference economically for the war effort. Um, mm-hmm. it's, not f- but, it's
2: not the first priority, right? It's, it, at right. least it, not at that time. Right. So, mm-hmm. so so, first of all, they they need
0: to cut off the financial flow. They, they cannot sponsor these places anymore. They have better mm-hmm. priorities. And uh they cannot send refugees there because, again, they, they had not yeah, been right. Right. So, so they 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 consider sending refugees there, including Jewish refugees, um, especially to Madagascar, um, because they know that initially emigration and colonial policies had been so interconnected in the discourse. Uh, but then they quickly realize again, it, it's not possible. Uh, so again. This geopolitical shift, which is, of course, you know, then the German invasion of Poland, makes these plans obsolete. So every time mm. the Polish yeah, elite right. are just about to just about to draw some benefits from their effort, colonial efforts, something global happens, and it exactly it yeah.
2: <laughs> no, That's a good. That's a perfect description. I, I think actually that that's a good way to kind of wind down your big your big arguments because. You know, I mean, I, I have this impression, and it, it's almost something that I get from reading Larry Wolf um, carefully, that that sometimes <sighs> if you read Larry and talking about Wilson and goat herds and things like that, that he's writing with a great sense of, of irony, which is coupled with, you know, the uh, catastrophe and, and disaster. And I, I wonder if you might say, you know, this is as a final kind of way of introducing Listeners to your writing, um, you make the, you make a comment toward the end, and, and I'm going to hold you to it about polo- Polish colonial aspirations as being quote anachronistic or at least misguided and, and misplaced. And I, you know, I think there's a reason for this. You're, you're talking about fantasies and dreams and and maybe delusions. Um, but do you think historians will will pursue that? That line of thinking, I guess there's so much work that I suppose can be done after reading your own research and comparing, say, Palestine to Madagascar or Liberia to Ethiopia. But this is really a question for you about style and tone, and and this is something that I kind of detected within your argument. So I want to hear what you have to say. Right. So on the one hand, I do
0: consider these plans Guided to be uh, manifestations of nationalism of anti-Semitism. We haven't talked about the so-called Jewish question uh, because, of course, that would open Pandora's box most likely. Um, so, so they are um, something to be criticized and to be uh, to be abhorred, even right. Uh, but at the same time, they are reflections of the world order um it, 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 there are genuine problems that that Poland faces in the interwar period and it's plausible in the context uh, uh of this colonial era to think that uh colonization um with emigrants or um gaining concessions uh of economic nature uh, might uh, might uh, option uh, so I try not to completely uh, uh, dismiss these plans as, as detached from reality. Uh, of course, they're fantasies, of course, they're uh, racist, phantasmagoria, uh, especially in Angola. I mean, I have a whole section about sort of uh, the Polish uh, intellectual subscribing scores uh uh, taking advantage of uh, of the indigenous and so on. Um, uh, but there's more to it, right? There, there, there's this engagement in Liberia, right? Uh, this attempt to pose as an anti-colonial power. Uh, all, all these attempts in Geneva, the League of Nations, to come up with um, technocratic uh, ways of uh, getting out of currency blocks, right? uh getting out of this illiberal system of tariffs, uh back to some standard, if not the gold standard, it's something else. Uh, so, so you know, I think that the future historians need to look at this and sort of um uh separate the wheat from the right um be be critical, be condemning but not uh, um but not uh not dismiss the whole the whole story as uh as irrelevant because it is very relevant. It it really shows um, that uh, you know being jealous of one's resources, uh, of one's privilege uh, was uh, the domain of great powers during the interwar period, despite the existence of the League of Nations, despite um, uh, all you know all the Wilsonian discourse. Uh, and when uh, when a country like Poland tried to, to join the club, it was rejected every single uh, time. Um, and, you know, it, it, yeah, so I'll leave it it's, at that. It's a,
2: it's a, and it's a fair critique, I think, of, of Poland's European project as well. So I mean to insist and in, in to actually really unearth, as you do in your book, the discourses that are still persistent in this form of, Eastern colonialism or Western colonialism, however we call it, ideologically constituted. So um, we are absolutely running out of time. And this is the last two minute question. If you can suggest a couple of books for our listeners and talk a little in a minute or so about your current um, research, what you are doing now, Piotr.
0: Of course. So um, the first book that I need to mention and recommend to uh, all of your listeners is, of course, uh, Lenny A. Urena uh, Valerio's uh, book, Colonial Fantasies, Imperial Realities, in which she really tackles uh, the connection between German imperialism and Polish colonial fantasy and how uh, they uh, dovetailed each other, um, how um, the German imperial project in Europe really triggered Polish colonial fantasy still in the 19th century. My uh, book is uh, almost a continuation of Lenny's book uh, chronologically. Um, there are many affinity works, and uh, I would uh, even read um, her book first and mine mine second because um, yeah. because she really lays out. Um, It's a brilliant um, book. The intellectual, yes, absolutely brilliant. Uh, And uh, another book that uh, uh, I uh, pay um, homage to is, of course, uh, my former advisors, um, Catherine Siancia's book uh, on Civilization's Edge, uh, in which she brilliantly examines the role of second-tier actors in, um, Volhynia, which was a Polish, uh, province, uh, during the interwar period, how these uh, secondary actors constructed, um, um, a discourse about civilization and about, uh, you know, hierarchies, uh, vis-a-vis Ukrainians, Jews, Belarusians, um, and other groups, uh, uh, so, so, so an absolutely, uh, fantastic work, um, and, uh, a really, uh, uh, by uh, Johan Beller about uh, Polish refugees in British East Africa uh, in World War II, which uh, takes that chronology, uh, you know, um, farther right uh, into into the 1940s, of course. Um, and 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 uh, Beller examines how mm, uh, Polish refugees um, were uh, both white and non-white. In British colonial setting uh, and, and and how you know how the British colonial officials felt very uneasy about the presence of uh, quote unquote poor whites uh, in uh, their their colonies at the time. So yes, so these are the, the that's perfect.
2: That's, that's uh, perfect. And 30 seconds. What what you're doing now? Right. Uh, I am interested in uh, communist Poland's uh,
0: attitude toward decolonization. Uh, I really want whether uh, the, the Polish foreign policy during the so-called fall, which coincided with the year of Africa, 1960, um, was um, whether, wow. whether the yeah. Poles were working uh, just hand in hand with the Soviets promoting decolonization movements or they had their own agenda. So this is, um, this is uh, something that I'm working on right now.
2: I I will read that, Piotr, as I've read this avidly. I just want to say congratulations on this book. And really, I hope our listeners here at New Books Network and, and New Books European Studies and New Books Polish Studies um, read it. The book is by historian Piotr Puchowski. It is called Poland in a Colonial World Order, Adjustments and Aspirations, 1918 to 1939, just published by Routledge 2022 for its series, uh, which I'd also very highly recommend, Routledge, Histories of Central and Eastern Europe. Thank you so much, Piotr, for joining me here at Nubix Network on the podcast today.
0: Thank you so much, Stephen. Once again, this was a great honor. Thank you.
2: And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Until next time.